There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. And I'm not the kind of person who really likes to, uh, you know, just be ecstatic and glory in somebody's pain and suffering, but Lori Lightfoot is out. I'm sorry. It's just... That woman is such a piece of garbage. The first female black gay mayor of Chicago who basically allowed Chicago to fall into the worst crime ever. She was running against nine other candidates, uh, but she couldn't win one of the two top slots. You see, it's one of those uh, elections where you have to have a runoff if somebody doesn't get over 50% of the vote. And Paul Valles, who's the uh, former s- superintendent of schools in Chicago, is now in a runoff against Cook County Commissioner Brandy Johnson. And he, one of them was endorsed by the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. The other is a, a, a kind of a progressive who was backed by the Chicago Teachers Union. But she didn't really get enough. It's obviously going to be Paul Vallis. And, you know, whatever you think of of uh, the, this determined effort that a lot of uh, the political scene seems to have about, well, we must have, uh, you know, representation by this minority group and we must have openly gay people and we must have this. No, no, no. We should have the best people the most qualified people serve in these positions of very high power. The Chicago mayor, Chicago was one of the greatest cities on, you know, in America. And now it's a tragedy. And it's been a tragedy for some time. But Lori Lightfoot made it worse. And, and then, you know, her concession speech was, obviously, we didn't win the election today. But I stand here with my head held high. Did you get your hair done? Just asking, because wasn't that the big thing when she was telling everybody else that they couldn't go anywhere and they couldn't do anything? She went and got her hair done during the lockdowns. But it, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't COVID that was her undoing. It was the carjackings and the gun violence and, uh, you know, the fact that she was always attacking and insulting any member of the press. At one point, she told the press that no white Reporters were going to be allowed to ask her any questions. <laughs> I mean, come on. She's just, and she would scream at them. You're going to let me speak. You're not going to talk over me. <laughs> you know, she's just such a, she was just such a dreadful human being, not to mention a dreadful mayor. So she's gone. Democrat Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot loses her reelection campaign, and that's a good thing. You know, because there's enough, uh, there's enough crime in Chicago. We don't need it getting worse every week. 
maybe we can see it turn around with a former police officer um, who's going to take it seriously. You know, get rid of some of these DAs that Soros got elected because they're part of the problem. You know, it's not all Lori Lightfoot's fault, but she sure does take up a, a lot of the oxygen when you talk about the condition of Chicago right now. So bye-bye, Lori. Um, don't let the door hit your behind on the way out. Just just saying, you know. Um, so much stuff, right? You know, you just, you, you have to, yeah, you need a good story, right? Every now and then. I do have some guests coming up. Of course, I'll have Blaze Angolia on to talk about what's going on in Tallahassee at 12.30. But I have a candidate who's running for Coconut Creek um, Commission. I live in Coconut Creek, so I'm interested in this candidate. Um, uh, Brody, his name is Brody, so we'll talk to him at 12.15. But I, I, I got to tell you, I saw a great story, or at least a feel-good story. It wasn't great because it happened, but uh, these two disabled women in Maine, and they, they had like intellectual disabilities, spent five days trapped in a Jeep with almost no food or water as the temperatures dipped to like 15 degrees. Last Tuesday, Kimberly Pouchard, age 51, and Angela Bussell, age 50, of Topsham, Maine, decided to venture out to a bowling alley in South Portland, about 40 miles south of Topsham. The two hopped into Pouchard's Jeep compass and headed out, but they were used to taking only short drives by themselves and soon made a wrong turn. One wrong turn then became several wrong turns, and by midnight on Wednesday, the two women found themselves as far away as Candia, New Hampshire, which is nearly 100 miles southwest of South Portland. Their families filed missing persons report about the two women early Wednesday morning after Pichard's cell phone pinged from New Hampshire and then died. A silver alert for missing vulnerable adults was quickly issued, and rescue teams began conducting a search by air and land vehicle. Despite these efforts, the hours and days ticked by, and family and friends were sick with worry. Meanwhile, they were desperately lost. They had stopped several times to fill up with gas and to ask for directions. They even crossed into Massachusetts at one point, though by 10.30 a.m. Wednesday morning, they were once again back in Maine. In fact, they were quite far north in Maine. Sometime on Wednesday, they turned onto a deserted snowmobile path near Nakatis Lake, about three hours north of their hometown of Topsham and four hours north of the bowling alley in South Portland. And after they drove a bit further down the snowmobile trail, the Jeep became stuck in the snow and the women were trapped. But it turned out that was a blessing in disguise because they were so far from civilization, they had to stay put. And at 4 p.m. on Sunday, five long days after they got stuck, they were finally rescued by game warden Brad Richard. Richard later recalled that when he first spotted the red Jeep, he had a bad feeling. There were no footprints in the snow and no exhaust coming from the car. However, after he announced his presence twice, Pouchard opened the door on the driver's side, poked her head out and said, Hello! <laughs> The women, ignorant of the massive search that had gone on on their behalf, also wondered how Richard knew their names. Well, we've been looking for you, he said. The Jeep had run out of gas on Saturday morning, so they sat in the vehicle without heat for about 36 hours, even as temperatures dipped as low as 15 below zero. 
They also had almost no food or water except for a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew, which was frozen and half empty. So Richard gave the women what remained of his lunch and called for help. They were taken to a hospital in Lincoln, Maine. Bouchard was treated for frostbite and released the same day, but Bouchard was kept overnight for observation. In the end, she seemed to have suffered only a few bruises and pulled muscles. She just talked and talked, her mother said about that night in the hospital. She sounded happy, just like the usual Kimmy. That's a feel-good story, okay? Because I, I just, I had so many bad stories to share with you. I said, let me throw in a feel-good one right in the middle. That was it. Don't expect any others because I couldn't find any others. <laughs> That's just the way it is, right? So did, uh, did by the way, there was a poll out. I know we're not allowed to talk about this because it'll upset you uh, Ron DeSantis supporters here in the state of Florida, but apparently uh, you're not in the majority in the state of Florida. Just saying. Did Trump pave a path with Hispanics and low propensity voters that very few can replicate? The Hispanic shift away from the Democratic Party and specifically away from the Biden administration is something that I've been watching closely, particularly here in the state of Florida, right? New polling shows that Biden's approval rating among Hispanics is continuing to sink and more Hispanics now want, you ready? Trump. They want Trump. They want him to run for president again. The increasingly radicalized nature of the globalist elite, the ones who prioritize lining their own pockets at the expense of the working class and handing over sovereignty to, to global institutions, weakening our ability to defend ourselves, has resulted in a noticeable, significant, and well-received decline in support for Democrats among Hispanics. The latest YouGov survey shows Biden's polling numbers have sunk nearly 20 percentage points with Latinos since he took office. Former President Trump's approval rating has been climbing steadily over the same period. The share of Latinos who say Trump should run again is up 14 points. I'm sorry. Some things just make me smile. I don't know that that's good news for you uh, DeSantaminios or DeSanctimoniouses, but it certainly is good news for me. Just saying. You know. much, whoa, Mr. so that was... That was, whoa, 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 stop that noise. Anyway, I was watching earlier uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's quickly becoming one of my favorites, just ripping into this nominee of Joe Biden's for, um, I'm trying to remember what she is nominated for, uh, some kind of uh, cabinet position. And she's a liar. And he caught her in a bold-faced lie. And, you know, it's funny when they get caught. They, they dig in, like they double down. Like, come on, guys. Do you think that, you know, we're not going to find you, find you out in this day and age? Of course we will. So it's, a, it's, a, it's just, it's hilarious to watch. Kind of like watching that Woody Harrelson torching Big Pharma during the opening monologue on SNL. That was great, great fun as well. So, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we just have to find joy where we can, you know? And by the way, I, I was going to do like a, a sort of a, a, a watch of the um, former president, Jimmy Carter, who, was, um, who decided to enter into hospice instead of any further treatment. Uh, he's 98 years old. You can kind of uh, think about that. And in the meantime, I'd been crafting all these things that I wanted to say 
upon his passing and his transitioning, and uh, he's doing the same thing to me that he did in that Deadpool for years, which is like, this guy is going to be around a long more. <laughs> it's, uh, it's okay, you know, but it's certainly interesting. Like, whatever, whatever he's eating, I want some of it. Maybe it's those peanuts, those Georgia peanuts or something. I love Georgia pecans. Could eat some Georgia pecans in his honor. I think that's what I'll do. I'd like a, a pedan, a pedan, a pecan party. All right, let me take a break because I do have a guest coming up at 12.15. I want to say that uh, you should be on the app, the 850 app, or you should be at the website, 850WFTL, so you could win some tickets to the Jupiter Lighthouse, a pair of tickets for a sunset tour at Jupiter Lighthouse. That's really cool. You get to climb all the way to the top and look at those spectacular sunset views. You want to enter to win? You got to go to 850WFTL.com or it's there available on your app. I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I, I happen to live in the city of Coconut Creek. I don't like to tell people that too much. Not because I don't love Coconut Creek. I really do. I think it's one of the greatest places to live on uh, in Florida. But because... It's a Democrat stronghold, and it's full of people who really just make my head spin, especially in the community I live in. But there's somebody running for the Coconut Creek City Commission in District D who is a very interesting person. First and foremost, let me introduce John Brody. He is a candidate for the seat, and he, he is not a liberal Democrat. How are you, John? I am doing outstanding, Joyce. Thank you for having me on this afternoon. No, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on, um, and and I have to tell you, I came home yesterday. I knew we were going to be speaking today. I came home yesterday, and someone had put a uh, something in my door about you, a, a neighbor saying like, "This guy is like the greatest. We got to help get this guy elected." And I thought, isn't that interesting? So there's a movement even in this de de democratic bastion that I live in to see you get, uh, you know, get some votes in this district. So how's it going out there? What are you finding? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, uh, we're actually educating HOAs at this point of understanding what canvases mean. Uh, everybody thinks it's soliciting, and it's not. It's a, it's a right protected by uh, the First Amendment and backed by the Supreme Court uh, ruling. So a lot of it's what we're seeing is we're having to educate everybody to understand the difference in Coconut Creek. There's been no real controversy because everybody was the same color uh, on the ballot. Uh, when they throw a red in there, it gets a little bit more complicated and uh, some brakes are being pumped. So Yeah, I'm sure, because I was shocked that it was in my door. You know, it was actually addressed to my husband, um, who's a registered Republican, and I'm not. Um, I'm just a non-party yeah. affiliate. I mean, the other thing, too, is, you know, you know, one of the things that happened here in the state is they, they rebooted the system for mail-in ballots. And I think it's a wonderful idea because now we get all on the same playing field. And mm -hmm. to be able to educate our, our Republican uh, friends out there to be able to do the mail-in ballots and at least have a fighting chance at elections now uh, by playing the game that we need to do to win those elections. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, you are, um, uh, like everybody else in Florida for the most part, uh, you're from somewhere else. You're from where, San Diego, California? Yes, ma'am. I grew up seven miles from the Tijuana border crossing. Oh, gosh. I bet you're glad you're here now with this governor. Oh, yes, yes. We moved out of uh, out of there, and uh, we settled into Coconut Creek, which actually reminded me of a lot where I grew up, mm-hmm. and laid-back personalities and uh, all the all the fun stuff that, uh, that Coconut Creek has, except we didn't have grass, obviously. It's California, water droughts. Uh, yeah, um, predominant there. Oh, you but do have nice palm trees. With the same attitude, so. Right, you do have palm trees because my son lives in L.A. and that's the only part of L.A. that I like is the palm trees. Um, let, let me ask you, what are the big issues for you? I mean, obviously, I live in a community that will be adversely affected by a turnpike expansion. It's a big issue in Coconut Creek. What do you think? Well. Yeah, the turnpike expansion is one of those things that's kind of been crammed down everybody's throat. Um, I don't know anybody in the city that really uh, is enjoying that uh, process. Uh, a few weeks back, they had a big showing. They showed us four different ideas. Uh, to me, they all look the same. And it actually took about five people to come over and try to convince me that it's a good idea, which uh, didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. So, But what can, what can we do? What is the city of Coconut Creek's residents going to be able to do to stop this? Well, I, I don't know if we're actually going to be able to stop it, but being able to mitigate some of the issues that are going to be impacting uh, the communities along that corridor, the turnpike, uh, certainly has some um, – we, we have some ideas, you know, putting impact windows in and, and having the dot or the Florida uh, trans, uh, turnpike uh, pay for those, uh, raising the walls up. Um, there's a lot of some things that we can kind of offset some of the problems. Um, they want to do a Texas turnaround on Lions Road, which, as you know, is a major throwaway through our city and impacts two major schools that we have there. Uh, so being able to convince them to move that out of that area uh, so it doesn't impact our residents uh, is some of the things we can have to deal with. Yeah. Well, and talking about schools, I mean, we do have a lot of schools in this area. And, you know, I'm watching these school zones that people are ripping through, especially on Coconut Creek Parkway where you have the uh, Atlantic Technical and, and the high school, um, people don't abide by any of the rules. And, and it's it's a dangerous time of day when kids are getting in and out of cars. Right. Well, we're, we're trying to work with the school board here. There's a lot of issues up and down that road. Um, the, with the vouchers that came in that you now you can go to other schools, we're starting to see a little bit of the overcrowding in Coconut Creek schools because they're amazing schools. Nice. Uh, amazing teachers, uh, but they're digging their heels in about how we drop off these cars now that are inundating uh, the drop-off zones and they're starting to back traffic into the main road, which is causing a lot of safety issues. Um, and to be honest with you, we've been trying to deal with it for about eight months since August, and the next August is right upon us, and we still haven't had a sit-down meeting with, with anybody, which is, is disheartening, uh, because eventually somebody's going to get killed, and I don't think we should wait to that point. Um, I think we need to solve the problem now before there's injuries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, another question that, that I wanted to ask you, and for the Coconut uh, Creek City residents, it's a big one, and that is, um, you know, all of a sudden, there's a ton of building going on, and in, in you know, I'm looking at all these Airbnbs coming into Margate and, and the surrounding areas around Coconut Creek. Is that what where we're headed? Well, 
the, the bigger problem, I think, is not the Airbnbs. I think the bigger problem in our in our city is is the way the real estate companies came in and bought up houses uh, when people were vulnerable during the pandemic, and now they're sitting on those houses, um, dry, artificially driving the prices up to the community of anybody trying to move in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big issue. Uh, people can't get houses or can't find houses within their budget anymore because the inventory has been choked out by the real estate companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that needs to be solved. Um, That'll help some of the building issues, but some of the stuff that's going on, we can't really stop. We, we know uh, businesses need to thrive. Uh, our city uh, is a wonderful place to build and, and work uh, and live. And I think that that's just kind of the issue that we're going to have to deal with, it, doing it in a smart and wise way that it doesn't impact traffic or our quality of life and, and the, the place we want to raise our kids. Yeah. Well, obviously, these kinds of elections are very difficult to give voter participation in. Anytime you have an election in March and all of these municipal elections, you don't see a lot of people come out. What are you doing to, to challenge the idea that you can't, you know, you can't win an election in this kind of area unless you're really out there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, we were at the Butterfly Festival on Saturday, which was generated almost 15,000 people, mm-hmm. um, and the guy walked up to my sign. He goes, man, I see these signs everywhere. And I kind of joked with him. I'm, I am everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you the, Really, it's the visibility of being out there and shaking hands. Uh, I'm doing a lot of knocking on doors. Uh, mm-hmm. Personally, uh, we've probably hit about 8,000 doors, um, you know, between myself and the team and my wife. And uh, being able to speak to residents one-on-one, uh, you hear people saying all the time, first, they didn't know there was an election. Secondly, they're impressed that a, that a commissioner is actually knocking on doors. And I, I find that kind of enlightening uh, to where we're at in our society, that we, we would rather send text messages and emails and do things on Facebook rather than face-to-face uh, communication, which is what I really enjoy doing. Yeah. Your history is a little interesting, too. Your father is a minister who helps homeless recovery in San Diego. Your mother's a teacher for special needs kids, and everybody else is in law enforcement. So what led you to the city commission? Well, you know, I always I always wanted to be a police officer, but I'm so severely colorblind um, <laughs> that that's not really a, a possibility. So I'm trying to help in a way that I can fit uh, my helping family kind of um, – and in, in to, to, to kind of, I guess, get people into a better place. Uh, we learned through the pandemic that people weren't in the right minds uh, going into it. So when you lock people down and take away all their stuff, well, some things will up. And our job is to, you know, kind of help get them to be seeing therapy and and, and doing things that will make them get back to being in a, in a normal space. Um, so my personality is I've always been a helper. I've helped with the, you know, special needs. I uh, helped with uh, Tomorrow's Rainbow and, and John Brick W uh, Foundation for Mental Illness. So there's a lot of things that I've been doing that's been under the radar. And, you know, the only person now is I'm called commissioner rather than just John. Yeah. Well, good. Listen, I wish you luck. You know, uh, stay in touch. I guess um, if if I'm correct, and I'm pretty sure I am, um, this election is going to take place shortly. And if people don't get out and vote... Then it'll go the way all elections in in this area go, which is uh, the a- a- ancient uh, forces of the Democrat Party will make sure that their people come out and vote, and uh, you're going to need help to get your people out to vote. Correct? Right. Rallying the troops is important, and making sure that we get you know the uh, the Republicans out to the vote. There's there's a ton of them, and what we found out too is 
a lot of them are coming in as MPAs because they don't want to be harassed. And I, I think that's a sad statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should be able to say who we are and be proud of that. Um, and so, yeah, we need to make sure that everybody gets out the vote on March 14th. And uh, if you want to know who I am, you can go to VoteBrody.com and, and see everything about me. I am an open book. All right. Good luck, John. We'll be talking. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, he got my vote. Anyway, um, it's amazing. He, he, he's right. I'm not one of those people who's not registered as a Republican because I'm afraid. I'm not registered as a Republican because as I, I despise Democrats but I'm not that fond of Republicans either. Anyway, let me take a break. When we come back, I'll be talking with Senator Blaze Angolia, find out what's happening in Tallahassee and what the governor is up to and uh, and what the, the House and Senate in Tallahassee is up to. I will be right back. All right, and we're waiting for uh, State Senator Blaze Angolia to, uh, to get on the line. Um, but in the meantime... I do have a couple of other stories. You know, Florida, um, what what is it they used to call it? Florida, D-U-H, because some stuff is just the stories that you hear are crazy. They just arrested a 72-year-old man for having child pornography in his home weighing over a ton. Like how much, how, how many boxes is that? They found more than 200,000 printed images in boxes in his office and bedroom, and they also found a printer that displayed signs of heavy use. A ton? You know, he was charged with 25 counts of possession. (laughs) You just can't make this stuff up, and unfortunately, it, it happens in the state of Florida far too often. Senator Ingolia is on the line. Um, he checks in with us every single week, uh, every other week, actually, so that we can find out what's happening in Tallahassee. How are you, sir? I'm well, Joyce. How are you? I'm very well. Um, I'm particularly well today because I love the fact that, once again, Florida is the state that's in the center of everything. We have two of the the highest, most talked about people in the whole Republican Party in this state. And I just love when the spotlight's on us for a good thing instead of a bad thing. Um, but some bad things are, are, are going on. What is this ultimate cancel act that you uh, introduced? Yeah, so, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to have me come on and talk about this. You know, as you know, Joyce, over the years we've had the leftist Democrats uh, try to cancel people, places, or things for things that they have said or done in the past, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen um, leftist Democrats want to tear down monuments and rename buildings, and you ask the question, why? And the why is always because they were supporting slavery or they were pro-slavery, and that gave them the, um, the onus to take down these statues. So what the Ultimate Cancel Act does is sort of flips the cancel culture back onto the Democrats. And what it says is that the basically the Secretary of State, the state of Florida, shall immediately decertify any political party that has advocated and adopted pro-slavery positions in their official party platforms. And that's the Democrats. Hmm. The Democrats for years and decades 
had advocated for uh, not only slavery, but the expansion of slavery in their party platforms. So if Democrats are going to say that we need to cancel all of these people because of their pro-slavery um, attitudes, regardless of what people have done recently, then we should be canceling the Democrat Party itself for the same exact reason. Mm. Oh, that's going to go over like gangbusters, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, the left you... is flipping out because we boxed them into a corner yeah. because now the Democrats are actually coming out and saying, well, that was a couple of hundred years ago. And my answer to that was like, well, it doesn't matter to cancel culture. Nice. It doesn't matter who you are today. Cancel culture dictates and mandates that you pay for the sins of your past and be canceled because of it. The Democrat yeah. Party under those same guidelines, that same metric should be canceled as well. So what happens to people who are registered Democrats? Not that I care. <laughs> so they would become uh, NPA voters, non-party okay. affiliated voters. They would still be able to vote. They would still be able to join another political party. You know, the Democrats at this point, or what used to be the Democrats at this point, would probably form a new party and try to get everyone to join the new party. They would just need a new name. And I have the perfect name for them, Joyce. Okay. The hypocrites. <laughs> they should call themselves the hypocrites. Hey, it works for me. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a great, if for no other reason, it shines a light on the hypocrisy, and I, I love that. Um, I also wanted to yep. ask you about a bill that I know was introduced, which I have been, I used to talk to then-Governor Rick Scott about this all all the time. I believe that we should be training up a workforce that includes technical careers, you know, this whole idea that everybody should go to college and everybody should be, a, you know, a STEM graduate is nonsense. I can't find a decent car mechanic because we don't educate people in this state. We don't link, you know, uh, success stories. We should have schools that we are, uh, we do have schools, but we should be filling them up with young people who could then get out of school and earn a living. And I, I understand that Senator Hudson said he wants to do that. He wants to provide some promotion for careers in the technical skills. Yeah, look, the idea that everyone needs to go to college uh, in order to be a productive member of society is fostered by um, the institutions, the college institutions, because they want to get the dollars that come with the students. Um, and you and I both know that we need um, people out there to learn trades because that is a big part of what is missing in our economy. So, yes, the Florida legislature is trying to um, reform workforce education, streamline it, so people, um, especially students, are able to enter the workforce and be an auto mechanic or a framer or a plumber or an electrician uh, or a nurse without actually having to go and rack up debt in, a, uh, in an institute of higher learning. So we're going to continue pushing on this issue. It is important to the state of Florida. Um, you do not need a four-year degree to make $120,000, $140,000 um, a year if you start off early right out of the gate of high school and get into the trades. Oh, absolutely. I, last time I had my air conditioning uh, fixed, I can tell you that that man uh, was worth his weight in gold. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody with a degree in 
uh, women's studies can't help me at all. <laughs> um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, what I used to talk about with Governor Scott and would love an opportunity to talk about with, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis is that when we were bringing businesses down here, which he did an, a yeoman's job of bringing a lot of new business into Florida, we should have put schools right alongside of those businesses that were training a workforce to go in there. Instead, we allowed these companies to import um you know, all of the people who would be working in those uh, factories or in those service businesses. And that was a missed opportunity. It's not too late. Yeah, but there's there's still some things, and, and this is just my personal opinion, there's still some things that are inherently wrong the way we actually train people for those jobs. So we could have a manufacturing uh, company, a large manufacturing company, let's say that employs 2,000 people, and we can have a school next door that is going to help train the people for that workforce for that company or similar companies. The problem is, is that there's so much bureaucracy around the school um, and there's so much politics being played about um, what they're actually going to train for. I actually think we're missing an opportunity by streamlining that process because I don't know if you're aware, but like apprenticeship and stuff, they actually have to go through um, an accredited uh, high school or an accredited college in order to do that. You know what bureaucracy there is with there with that. So I think there are some opportunities that we have in the future to help streamline that process. I would like to get as much government out of that process as possible and get the free market to work for itself where these companies can actually go and hire people and train them themselves mm -hmm. and not even worry about the bureaucracy of a school and the red tape of a school. That's where I would like us to see. Yeah, that's kind of what I what I envision is that you would if you bring yep. a, a an Amazon, uh, you know, down here that you would say, "Well, why don't you train the local workforce?" Um, and and that way we would keep jobs within the communities, and maybe people would stay in communities longer. I mean, it's a tragedy that most of us watch our children leave the community only to never come back, and um, it's because they no can't get jobs. No argument for me. I yeah, agree with you there. Yeah, I got one in L.A., one in Detroit, one in San Francisco, you know, because there was no opportunity there wasn't that kind of opportunity for them here. I think there is now, but they're not never coming back which I guess is probably a blessing as well. Finally, the environment. I mean, obviously, you know, they like to paint this uh, this picture of Republicans as not watching over our, our, the environment, which I find is the exact opposite. Meanwhile, every other state in the union is allowing the Chinese Communist Party to buy up all the farmland. We're not doing <laughs> that, are we? Yes. No, there's a couple of bills that are being introduced in the legislature. I was actually planning on following a bill to do uh, to do something similar, but I had found out that my colleagues were um, planning on doing. There is um, there are two proposals that are going to probably be debated. One is any large pieces of farmland in or around military installation or sensitive areas. Um, that is a bill that has been championed by our Commissioner of Agriculture, Wilson Simpson. And then uh, Governor DeSantis has one that is a little bit more aggressive that says that the Chinese Communist Party cannot buy any land whatsoever if you have ties to the actual party. Um, and 
anywhere in the state of Florida. So um, that's a little bit more problematic to figure out how to do because then you have to, you know, there's a lot of investigatory stuff. It's how do you find out if it ties back to the CCP, all that other stuff. But um, one of those two will definitely go through. And again, Florida will lead on this issue. I hope so. I mean, I saw that there was a train derailment here in Florida and Hazmat was dispatched. You know, it's it's incredible to me that we're facing this every single day somewhere in America. And, uh, you know, what happened to all that infrastructure money that Washington demanded from us? You know, it's really falling to the states to protect its citizens more and more. Oh, you mean the Inflation Reduction Act or yeah, the omnibus before that? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a joke, Joyce. You know that the federal yeah. government is a joke. They're not serious about governing. They're just – the only thing that they're serious about is giving out as much money as possible. Um, so the entrenched bureaucrats and the politicians stay in power as long as they can. Yeah, and unfortunately, truer words were never spoken. Thanks so much. Always, Senator Ingolia coming on every other week to give us the updates from Tallahassee. Anything else you wanted to share? Nope, that's it. Looking forward to the start of legislative session next week, and I can fill you in on what's going on when I come on next time. Have a great week, everyone. Yeah, you have a great week as well. All right. It's, uh, It's good to know what's happening in Tallahassee. And mark my words, I know you guys... You know, you've learned over the years that I have an incredible prophetic sense when it comes to this. That man will be the governor of the state at some point. I I can't tell you when. That hasn't come through in the prophecy yet, but he will be the governor. So everybody be really nice (laughs) to Senator Blaze Angolia. Um, Don't forget, coming up at 1 o'clock is Dan Bongino. At 4 o'clock is Ben Shapiro. At 6 o'clock is the WPTV Local News. We have uh, Lars Larson. We have Joe Paggs. And, of course, in the morning, Jen and Bill will be back. Uh, Thanks uh, thanks to somebody who sent a really nice letter. Um, I'm complimenting me and Jen and Bill to our... um, our manager, our program director, well, he's not the program director anymore. He's like oversees everything. And he forwarded it to all of us. And I don't know who that person was, but thank you so much because I get lots of those, you know, applause emails personally. But when you send them to the bosses, it really helps. Anyway, let me take a quick break. I'll be back to finish up the show. I don't know what's happening with uh, John Fetterman, but apparently there's no updates. He's visiting with people. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, just, I just wonder how the people who voted for him feel. But that's a whole other thing. I was watching a, um, a congressional committee because one of the things that I, as many of you know, I'm very interested in the... Uh, idea that we are losing an entire generation to fentanyl, you know, and that that, that fentanyl comes across the southern border. And it's not, you know, it's one thing if it was just killing like addicts. Not that that would be acceptable to me, but that's not what's happening. So yesterday the House Homeland Security Committee had a, a a group of parents and people come in to talk about the crisis uh, at the border and how it's impacting the lives of Americans, some of whom don't live anywhere near the border because the fentanyl crisis has reached 
every single state of the union. So the one of the people that they had testifying was a woman uh, named Rebecca Kiesling, and she was from Michigan, I think uh, a suburb in Michigan. And she lost two sons to fentanyl poisoning. The two boys thought they were taking Percocets, and this was back in 2020. And she totally broke down during her testimony, as you can imagine. You know, she, she said, if you were freaked out over a Chinese spy balloon that killed nobody, but you don't have that same level of concern over the fentanyl crisis at the southern border, which has spiraled out of control, she says not enough is being done. The number's going up, not down. You talk about children being taken away from their parents at the border. My, my children were taken away from me, she said, 100,000 Americans every year. It's not about race. It shouldn't be politicized. Fentanyl doesn't care who gets it. And she's absolutely right. You cannot separate the border crisis with this. You're welcoming drug dealers across the border. You're giving them protection. That doesn't protect our children. And then she took aim pretty deliberately. First of all, it was gut-wrenching. If you didn't see it, you should go on uh, you know, Rumble or YouTube and type in uh, Rebecca Kiesling, uh, Congressional Committee, um, because her opening statement will break your heart. You know, but it needs to be it needs to be viewed by many, many people because Mallorca's lied and Americans are dying. Fentanyl is smuggled both through the ports of entry and in between ports of entry all along the southern border. And the cartels have largely switched to making and smuggling fentanyl to meet demand for stronger drugs in the United States. It's also not limited to a, you know, a growing season like marijuana. They used to just import pot. But pot, you know, you can only get it when the when the the crop comes in. Fentanyl is a chemical that they manufacture. So, you know, this is it's flooding our country and it is literally um, you know, wreaking havoc among families. These two young boys, look, I'm not excusing the idea that during the pandemic there were young people going on these uh, social media platforms and they were attempting to purchase uh, you know, pills, uh, Percocet and, and Oxycodone and things like that, uh, illicit pills. But the, they had no idea that the danger they were walking into because this fentanyl was being laced into these pills and these were not addicts. These, these were kids. And, and that doesn't mitigate that they were doing something ridiculous and illegal. But imagine you have two sons and both of them succumb to fentanyl thinking that they're just, you know, buying some painkillers. You know, I don't know what the story is, but I do know that her testimony was very compelling and very riveting. And then I saw something else, and it was really, um, it just disturbed me to my very core. And I thought it was just me that saw this um, at the Screen Actors Guild Awards on Sunday. I don't watch the awards, but I look for... Um, I look for certain people who cover those events to showcase what would be the most egregious moments, right? I guess they also show you the best moments, but in this case, uh, I think it was Megyn Kelly had posted that Sally Field, who, you know, look, 
you, you can be a liberal and you can be as nutty as you want to be. That doesn't mitigate the fact that she was a great actress. I don't know if she's still a great actress, but she certainly, uh, you know, the Flying Nun and, and uh, what was the, the one with uh, Julia Roberts. Uh, you know, she was in a movie that haunted me for years with uh, Kiefer Sutherland where she was a mom and her daughter called as she's being murdered. Um, and then the courtroom drama that precipitated in her actually uh, doing in the criminal. But but she gets up there to get a, an, a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, right, at the Screen Actors Guild Award th this last Sunday. And she apologized for being white. Like, what is that all about? When did this become acceptable? She, why did she feel she had to say, I'm sorry for being a little white girl with privilege? And th that's what she said. I was a little white girl with a pug nose born in Pasadena, California. And when I look around this room tonight, I know my fight, as hard as it was, was lightweight compared to some of yours. I thank you. I applaud you. What Did Sally Field asked to be born a little white girl with a pug nose in Pasadena? No. You know, because newsflash, white girls in America have all kinds of trouble. They're the highest preponderance of suicide are white girls with pug noses in America today. When you're in front of a group, just because there's a lot of people of color group, you don't have to apologize for your color. It's such hypocrisy. It's such virtue signaling. It's so vile. Sally Field could have got up there and said, you know, look, if she wanted to make a political case, she could have gotten up there and said, hey, you know, I came up in this industry when there were guys like Harvey Weinstein and you would, uh, you know, be, be uh, aggressively pursued sexually by these guys. If you wanted to have a career, a lot of women, including some very, very famous women, including Marilyn Monroe and others, you know, had to be subjected to sexual aggression on the parts of these powerful men in Hollywood. But no, that's not what Sally Field said. Instead, she talked about the color of her skin. And I find that so demeaning. You know, why not say, hey, I'm really grateful that I had all these opportunities, but I pretty much, you know, I nailed them. I, I, I did what I, what I could to make myself a great actress. I did really well. I feel good about doing really well. You could have said anything instead of, I'm a little white girl from Pasadena, and I basically suffered nothing like you people here in this room. First of all, it's so diminishing to people of color, right, who are in the room. She just assumes that all people of color are oppressed. Why? Why should she assume that, that they've all had it so bad? Um, uh, Alex Carolla was on and said, when it comes to Hollywood, it's all about saying what you need to in order to be employed. And actors need employment. And they, they can get canceled. And they never get to come back if they're not in the right uh, political party and they don't say the right political things. So um, maybe Sally Field should just not continue this practice of dividing everybody into racial groups and socioeconomic groups and what kind of nose you have or who you're sleeping with groups. It's just, it's enough already. Do they not realize how, how sick and demented it is to continue to divide the American people? I guess they don't. 
Well, I thank you for your time this time until next time. And my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon. I will have Howard Galganoff, my special guest, will be in the studio with me. And uh, we're also going to be uh, get, getting some filming uh, of a, uh, a documentary um, that will be taking place. And then uh, tomorrow night I'll actually be up in Port St. Lucie where I will be speaking in front of the uh, Port St. Lucie Tea Party. So I am going to be from 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 Oakland Park to Port St. Lucie all in one day with no rest in between. And not that I want you to feel sorry for me because unlike, uh, you know, uh, Sally Fields, it's not, I'm not going to make you, ask you to feel uh, bad about the color of my skin or the color of your skin or the opportunities I had or any of that other stuff because I'm so sick of it and I know that you are too. So that's my plan, to be back here at noon, if it be his will and he delays his coming, what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters, apparently compared to the color of our skin, according to Sally Fields. So <laughs> my wish for you is that God would bless you and God would bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.